developers can just concentrate on writing the code and doing the bits that they enjoy. So I think a core part of the developer experience team at Netlify is ensuring the people that use Netlify and the associated tools around the web have the best experience they possibly can. Because the more enjoyable your experience is, the more dopamine you get from being able to put stuff online really quickly when stuff just works and you don't have to pull your hair out trawling through documentation and looking through bugs and like, ah, and spending days on things that don't work. Tired of security bottlenecks? Sneak is a developer security platform that automatically scans your code, dependencies, containers, and cloud configs, finding and fixing vulnerabilities in real time from the tools and workflows you already use. Create your free account at sneak.co slash stackoverflow. That's S-N-Y-K dot C-O slash stackoverflow. Head on over, support the podcast, let them know we sent you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. My name is Cassidy Williams, and I am here with my lovely co-host, Ciora Ford. Hi, everyone. And we have a couple of nerds here as our guests today. (laughs) From my old team at Netlify, we have Phil and Salma, who are on the developer experience team. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. This is nice. Nice to see some friendly faces. Yeah, it's good to have you both. It's exciting to to be able to kind of meet you in a way mm. after oh, seeing yeah. you both all over Twitter all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm we so are used real to just people. seeing their faces, <laughs> but yeah, you get to see more than profile pictures now. <laughs> yeah, isn't it nice? <laughs> what a concept. Um, and so I'd like to start with learning a little bit more about you both and then kind of getting into some of the nitty gritty of Jamstack things and and the edge and all of that. And I don't mean edge browser, although it's a nice browser. And I'd like to say (laughs) rest in peace to Internet Explorer because- Thank you for your service. mm, The day of this recording is its last day. Wow. It is dead. Should we have a moment of silence? Should we? It would be weird on a podcast. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if we can have like a distant bugle in the background, respectfully kind of bugling. Everyone, yeah. every listener just needs to pause for 10 seconds. To 10, se- Whoa, ten, 10 seconds. Is gonna be- <laughs> just pause this episode pause and then continue. And then c- continue. Okay, right. Perfect. Uh, speaking of things that are getting old, Phil, how did you begin your coding journey? <laughs> I can wow. say this because we're friends. I'm not just being so, rude. <laughs> what a springboard into our conversation. Uh, so well, my coding journey, I mean, at the, back at the very beginning, at the very beginning, I'm not starting at the beginning of the universe, but uh, my first <laughs> dabblings with uh, building things on a computer, well, I did I did my, my art exam when I was 15 uh, wow. on a Sinclair Spectrum writing BASIC. Uh, to make kind of Mondrian uh, kind of squares and lines of colors. And everybody around me thought I was completely crackers doing that. They thought it was, what What are you doing? <laughs> no one understood why I was doing that. And I, I just found it interesting. But I didn't touch them again for quite a while, really. Um, I, I went off and tried to study architecture and wasn't good enough Ooh. at all of the things you need to do architecture. So I went down the track. <laughs> and then I completely changed tack and went and... You know, I was inspired by some friends of mine who were doing a computer science degree and got 
interested in it. So I, I changed course while I was at university and uh, much, mm. much to the delight of my parents, as you can imagine, who've kind of been paying for my studies so far um, <laughs> and went off and did a computer science degree um, and didn't enjoy it at all. I'll be very, very honest. There are aspects of it that were kind of satisfying, but largely I did not have a good time. There was nothing to do with the web in that in that degree, uh, which maybe mm. dates the degree and as a buyer as well, me. So thanks for that uh, little lead in, Cassidy. Um, You're welcome. But I did start dabbling with making things for the web just on the side there and discovered that mm. I could open a text editor, write some HTML, hit refresh in a browser and, you know, and kapow, there were things there to see. So that instant feedback loop was incredibly exciting. And that marked the start of my journey, really. And that was me learning by viewing source, asking asking people around me for help, learning bit by bit about, you know, hot linking resources from other servers and, you know, other oh, bits and man. pieces that just blew my mind when I hadn't really started to understand what the web was. Um, and I just, I was hooked then. So um, my studies uh, for my degree didn't necessarily thrive as a result of it because I was a little distracted, but I think it <laughs> it re-energized me to a certain degree, and that was that's where I began my journey, and then off into industry after I after I graduated, doing things with with, with web technology. So that was that was my that was my route. Nice. Here. And what about you, Salma? My coding journey is like a play in four acts. <laughs> um, <laughs> act one. Interesting. <laughs> Act one was also starting with basic. When I was six years old, I had a Commodore 64 wow. and a manual, like a, a very thick manual. I was doing a, I was doing a thickness um, gesture, but realized we're on a podcast, not a video. It was um, huge. <laughs> and I would sit there um, at the age of six and copy out this basic code from this manual and make stuff happen in the blue terminal. Like colored squares and bouncy balls and all sorts of stuff. And the th running theme throughout all of these four acts is the fascination that I had with making things happen on a computer. Act two was my discovery of GeoCities when I got the internet mm. um, about uh, seven years later. And I was, I was building GeoCities websites whenever I could. And uh, I had no idea what I was really doing at the time. Act three was when um, I I had a boyfriend who was a SharePoint developer who um, taught me <laughs> who taught me um, basics of HTML and CSS and uploading that via FTP to be on the web. And um, in combination with that, I was working with an old bit of software called iWeb on Mac computers, where it was pretty much like drag and drop images. Um, websites that were image based would be, I mean, I dread to see what the source code is like, but it allowed <laughs> me to, to YOLO deploy that stuff. And Act 4 begins the actual start of my career in industry, which... Through a series of very lucky events, I got a job at this very small like magazine, website, house, place, and as a graphic designer and salesperson. But there was one IT. Hmm. Oh, yeah, wow, what a uh, long story. Mm. But there was um, a one IT person there. His name was Steve, and I, I'm still in touch with Steve now. Who um, 
we got talking and he uh, noticed my love and passion and excitement about building for the web. And he, he was the only developer building the CMS, the front end, the infrastructure and everything. So wow. cheekily, without asking for permission, I moved my chair around from my desk to his desk and he started mm. teaching me the stack. Um, it was PHP. We were writing CoffeeScript and SAS. I was wow. like in the deep end. Um, so that was technically my first dev job. And then I got a series of, of different front end focused jobs, moved up to being a tech lead. And now I am here. Dang, coffee script. The, wow. the, they were arrow functions before arrow functions <laughs> were a thing. Yeah. Good times. I'm not even going to lie. I have no idea about it. Most of the <laughs> you talked about <laughs> as someone as someone who's only been around for like a year and a half now i'm really like what but i did some googling on the side <laughs> so i can have an idea of what's being discussed um i think the natural transition now that we have an idea of how you like got started coding is to learn more about like what you do at netlify and once you tell us like in the technical way Try to also tell us in a way that like a five-year-old would understand too. I like to hear like both because it can, sometimes I'm the five-year-old who like needs, has a harder time understanding some of those things. So yeah, just explain to us like what you do at Netlify, what your day-to-day -day looks like, all that kind of stuff. I guess I, I'll start with a, fi with a five-year-old uh, definition is that I help people build stuff for the web. I help people make websites, really, bottom line. Um, whether that might be how it looks, how it works, where it comes from in the world when you put a website address into your browser. We can get onto that later. Everything to do with things that you look at in a, in a web browser on your phone or on your computer or wherever you are. I help people make those in the best way I know how to. And Phil, you can do the complicated <laughs> I mean, I'll be I'll be honest I think that I think that is the the harder one to do to try and kind of distill this down to the yeah to the five-year-old friendly one I think that's I think that is the harder one um but yeah I, I mean I, I I would so Salma and I work work together in the developer experience team um and Netlify being a product which is for developers we're trying to make sure that you know the the first users of these of our services are as intuitive and um, powerful and kind of um, effective as possible, really. So I, I, I think it's probably fair to say, I don't want to put words in Salma's mouth, but I suspect that we both found our way there by being enthusiastic about this way of building sites for the web and found that it got obstacles out of our way. So we got enthusiastic about building things in a certain way and Netlify happened to be the tool that was helping us to do that. Or rather, the glue that helped us use whichever tools we were interested in is probably a more... Um, appropriate way of describing it uh, because Salma and I've got slightly different experiences in the way that we've built things we've got different levels of experiences with different tools but we both ultimately want to get things out onto the web as quickly as possible and we want to help others do the same so that really is what we what we're trying to do you know we're, we're trying to help help developers understand how they can use the tools that we're familiar with um, to solve the problems that they have day to day and you know my my Back in my origin story, where I was looking at you know writing things in a text editor and then hitting refresh and seeing them in the browser, that was the thing that excited me. You know, writing writing first of all HTML and then some CSS and then ultimately JavaScript. I was a JavaScript developer for for quite some time, but the thing that I was terrible about is terrible at is hosting infrastructure. I 
don't get me wrong, I could I, I was very excited building things with PHP. I could get MySQL running. I built lots of things on the LAMP stack for me. But if I was to do that professionally and try and make sure that that was resilient and suitable for the world to come and look at, I was not the person to do it. So there's a long there's a long way between being able to do it for you and being able to do it production level. So the thing that excites me about where we are now is that you know we're, we're building tools that help people a bit like us. I'm sorry, I keep on putting words in your mouth, somewhere. I'm sure you'll correct me. Um, but <laughs> front, that people who build things with web technologies, particularly at the front end, be able to get those things out to the world as, as robustly and quickly and effortlessly as possible. So we can concentrate on writing the code and the what I personally find to be the fun stuff. So um, that's that's where I spend my time. That's the core part, what Phil just mm. said about developers can just concentrate on writing the code and doing the bits that they enjoy. So I think a core part of the developer experience team at Netlify is ensuring the people that use Netlify and the associated tools around the web have the best experience they possibly can. Because the more enjoyable your experiences, the more dopamine you get from being able to put stuff online really quickly when stuff just works and you don't have to pull your hair out trawling through documentation and looking through bugs and like, ah, and spending days on things that don't work. The easier and the more enjoyable your experiences, the more likely you're going to pursue this, do it more, do some side projects, enjoy your work more. And I think this was embodied very uh, nicely and um, immortalized in the new Netlify video that we released. Um, oh, yes. Nice work. Nice work. <laughs> nice so look like that. Mark. A tale of two universes. Um, and, uh, you know, I if you've seen that, and we can probably link to it. Um, we'll link to it in the show notes. I I have been in that position where it's taken me days to be able to actually develop something and code something on my local machine if I've started a new job. Um, like the, the archaic systems that Jamstack has taken us away from, um, has empowered us and um, made our lives pretty peachy, to be honest, if I <laughs> like to say, to say that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think... Um, Jamstack has a special place in my heart because um, I've talked about this several times on the podcast before. I am a huge fan of the developer happy path. And I think that finding that happy path, especially when you're first starting out, is really important, although it's like nearly impossible. But for me, any tools or um, stacks or whatever you want to call it that can make that happy path as easy as possible for newer developers to find is I'm I'm automatically going to be a fan. And I started out dabbling in the front end by getting involved in Jamstack and the Jamstack community and all that kind of stuff. So I totally, everything you're saying resonates with me 100%. And I think it's cool that like you get to genuinely work on something as a developer experience engineer, as a developer advocate that like, you know, is actually helping developers and actually legitimately making their jobs easier at large that must be like a really good feeling to have like at the end of the day when you finish your work I like to try and give people what I needed when I was starting out mm -hmm. and what I didn't have and that makes me feel really happy and like I've been through the nonsense I've been through the bugs I have pulled my hair <laughs> out a bit but you don't yeah. need to anymore so you go run free and write your code and enjoy your life and and I will 
revel in your glory and your efforts. <laughs> I will revel it in reminds your glory. Me of, if, that isn't, uh, if that isn't a pull quote for the, for the episode, <laughs> then I don't know what is. That <laughs> uh, it reminds me of, there was a point where I was showing a friend of mine, like Jamstack style web development, which we should probably define that more. But I, I was showing her how to build it and, and how to deploy it and everything. And she shipped her website and it was live. And she said, wait, that was it? And I said, yeah, that's it. She said, why did I get a computer science degree? This is so easy compared to what I've been learning my whole life. Yeah. It was very funny. The nice aspect of that is, you know, why did I get a computer computer science degree? Um, that, it's not to say that then once once these challenges get out of your way, it's like, oh, well, it's now it's easy. I mean, we kind of need to get these challenges out of the way because front-end development is is hard it's hard i mean yeah. it's 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 easy yeah. to it's easy to do do something but it's a huge world that you open up right so doing the right thing and doing the right thing the right way can be incredibly complex and it's it's one of those things that just it never it never stops you know it's always expanding it's always evolving and also what, what was the expression there's probably this is probably a, a proper quote from a sensible person that i should be able to reference but i just i heard <laughs> once uh you know I, I heard web development being described as like the most hostile environment for your code to run because you don't know what device it's on what conditions it's in what lightning lighting conditions it's in all the rest of it you know the the capabilities of the person using it um there are so many unknowns so if you can work on that part of the craft which is ever expanding and not need to care about some of the the kind of fundamental how do i serve it in the first place if you can abstract some of that away then um yeah you can you can concentrate on the other stuff and there are there are a million other specialties specialities and kind of skills you know that you can focus on just within the front end i think so that's that makes me very excited the fact that people can become real experts in so many aspects of the craft it's it's very cool to see the results yeah now, speaking of all the things evolving and changing and growing, the term Jamstack has evolved a lot over the past year, but also just also in the, in the past few years. Um, and then there's there's this concept of the edge, which I think many people might think is the internet browser. Um, but no, there's other things. Could you explain kind of how Jamstack has evolved and what the edge is for those who are kind of getting deeper into this end of web development? So the term Jamstack was coined um, quite a few years ago, um, around 2018, 20, I can't remember the exact 2015, date. You have to, 2015, 2015, yeah, 2015. Yeah, yeah. It came about from the using the combination of JavaScript, J, APIs, A, and markup, M, uh, to build websites and um, hosted on Netlify at the time. And uh, when the whole concept of serverless and the cloud kind of entered the mainstream web space, things started changing. Um, serverless functions came to be. So you could run like, you could spin up little backends and run backend stuff um, with your site on the Jamstack. And, and things started expanding like exponentially, all the different things that you could do with a Jamstack site. And throughout that evolution, um, they, we got rid of the JAM, capital JavaScript APIs and markup um, to just be Jamstack to kind of, demonstrate that shift that it's not just about JavaScript APIs and markup. And to be honest, 
the core at the core of Jamstack is an architectural approach that's just about serving static assets from a CDN, which is a content delivery network, which um, is distributed all around the world. So when you request a site that is on the Jamstack, you request a Jamstack site that's on a CDN, you get delivered a cached, static, pre-built bit of HTML asset that is at the closest server node to you. And so that's the original kind of edge, the content delivery network of delivering static assets. And now as the Jamstack has evolved even more and changed even more and brought so many other things into this ecosystem, um, now we have the edge. And as you can, you can compute at the edge, you can run backends at the edge, much like you can do serverless function stuff at the edge. They are in fixed locations, but now the edge serverless functions at the edge is what's really even more exponentially growing um, the, the concept of the Jamstack architecture. And I like to call these things, and I know Phil does as well, I'm going to put words in your mouth. Phil mm -hmm. likes to call these types of things around the core concept of the Jamstack architecture. We like to call them adjacent technologies, whereas you can mm -hmm. harness those technologies when you're using the Jamstack, but they're not really part of the core of what we mean when we are delivering static assets from the Jamstack. And what's great about this is that so many different frameworks and static site generators and, and other tools in the ecosystem are adopting this edge stuff, serverless stuff. Everything is kind of growing to increase the capabilities of dynamic delivery on the Jamstack and things like that. But then, you know, I can't remember what I was about to say, but... The Jamstack is is an ecosystem centered around the core architectural principles of serving static assets. And I guess I'm looking at one of the questions on the list you gave us about what annoys you about the Jamstack. And actually, that's one of the things. It's it's so blurry and it's really hard to describe this to newcomers and beginners and people who are new to this whole concept because there is so much noise around all the different tools. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and and, yeah. and I think it's a, a reasonable criticism that's kind of come our way as well. It's like it's, as people who advocate for the Jamstack, it's, it's like is the is this definition a bit blurry? What's the what's what's the what's going on there? And that's that's fair. And I think the reason that's happened is because the web has evolved so much. And since you know, since since yeah. it, since, you know, at, when it at its inception, Jamstack was really kind of created as to give us a vocabulary to talk about this kind of approach that Sam was just laying out about kind of pre-rendering things and then serving them from whatever infrastructure that was convenient to you. And, um, and, and the fact that there was uh, build automation and all this tooling to make that happen all, all, the, all the more efficiently, great, that kind of gave rise to its popularity and what have you. But I remember once giving a, a talk about Jamstack and one of the questions that came from the audience was, is serverless Jamstack? And I was completely thrown by that because I was like, well... Not really, but it is the perfect, as Salma says, kind but of adjacent kind technology. Of? Yeah, yeah, because because the yeah. the thing that excites me about building things this way in this kind of Jamstack architecture is that I don't need to care about a server. So I, you know, I, I think about a build server and getting things out to hosting infrastructure, but I don't need to think about maintaining a server. And that is very much true of serverless functions as well, right? It's it's functions as a service that we know will execute in infrastructure that we don't care about in the same way that we don't need to care about the CDN, the content delivery network that's serving our assets. So it kind of fits really nicely and there's a perfect extension of that. And now, as Salma was saying, you know, it's it's now even more exciting that we can 
not just have things running at request time in serverless functions where we don't need to worry about the server, but we can have those happening at those edge nodes that Sam alluded to close to wherever the user is and start to even say, well, we might know some things about the user based on the fact that it's coming from a node close to them. So we know things about their location. You know, we know things about the time of day. We can do all kinds of things that means that we can be very dynamic in the kind of ways that we respond to that. So it kind of unlocks some of the capabilities that we once thought of as being only the in the domain of a server side, server rendered thing, but without having to have a server and having a so so I, I kind of think of it as no server hosting. I don't I'm not going to inter- introduce another term, but you know, serverless is already a <laughs> term. But it's it's like delivering sites yeah. without ever needing to care about a server and even though you can do stuff quote unquote server side thanks to edge compute and serverless i always find it really difficult to talk about jamstack without talking about the alternative and mm. the old kind of original way that the web was built because you could say oh yeah jamstack it's this architecture about serving pre-rendered assets but if someone is new to development they don't actually know what the alternative is and what the problems were in the past like what you were saying phil right. about servers with jamstack you don't manage your own servers um, a web hosting web platform uh, takes care of that for you. But back in the day, before this whole kind of thing came about, you would have to manage your own servers, scale them up when your traffic increased, uh, security patches, all that kind of other difficult stuff. And so, um, you know, it's a, it's really hard to give like a definition of the Jamstack because you have to contrast it with the alternative to show the benefits that it gives you as a developer. Yeah. I. I'm really glad that you brought that up because um, I think this is something that maybe a lot of developer people who work in developer experience and developer advocacy might have to run into because the whole goal is to make whatever technology you're dealing with as approachable as possible, meaning that someone new to development should be able to immediately understand what you're talking about. And I ran into this same issue when I was working with Apollo GraphQL and GraphQL, because normally with GraphQL to explain why it's beneficial, you talk about rest. But if you're new to, if you're completely new to development, you may not even have even ever worked with rest. Right. So like Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it becomes a, a question of like, how do you make this thing approachable for anyone from like day one without having to give a whole history lesson should you have to give a whole history history <laughs> lesson is that necessarily like a bad thing like i think to now a lot of people because of the the kinds of tools that are available a lot of people want to get up and running like immediately i want to sit down at my desk at my computer and be able to build something without having to like know a ton about it but is that like necessarily the best way to do things i'm asking like a couple questions in one right now but i'm basically i at the at the end of it all, I basically really want to hear how you as developer experience engineers dealing with this specific problem, how do you tackle that in a way that you that makes you feel like satisfied with the solution, if that makes sense? It depends. To quote Cassidy, <laughs> it depends. <laughs> it's probably entirely personal to that audience, to that situation, yeah. to that project. Um, I I tried really hard just now not to give all the history, but I kind of felt like I had to in case any people are hearing the term Jamstack for the first time, you know, on this podcast. Um, But there are plenty of places that you can go to uh, find out more about the Jamstack if this word is new to you and they'll be linked somewhere. Yeah, we'll have we'll have some very fleshed out show notes. (laughs) 
and and can can I add one last thought to that also? Because um because I I, I think um yeah, this idea of having an easy on ramp into starting to build stuff is critical, right? So um I, I really care about helping people find their way to an experience that means that they can start creating and 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 start building things. And lots of services and tools around in this kind of ecosystem are, are centered around that. So which I find it really exciting. The the flip side to that is you want people to be able to achieve what they need to achieve as rapidly and easily as possible. But I think there is a core understanding that's important as well. So, you know, the, the more magic and abstraction we introduce, the greater the developer experience can be. But we should always try and keep in sight, ultimately, that's in service of a user experience. So coming back to the that, that perennial, it depends, you know, the, choose, the to- tools you choose <laughs> should always depend on the thing that you're trying to create and the uses you're trying to create for. And I, I know Salma does, does a lot of talking about choosing the right tool for the job and what have you. And um, so I think that's, that's where the tension and the kind of craft comes in. It's like, get going and learn as fast as possible and feel productive, wonderful. But um, supplementing that with understanding the choices you're making and like some of the, the, the things that underlie it, yeah. um, that's a really valuable thing too. Yeah, well yeah absolutely yeah both of you that was two very good answers to the question yeah <laughs> and I think one thing that I've been trying I've tried to do in the past is kind of like offer the information if the reader or the learner wants it so like if you are like me and you feel like you need to know everything about whatever it is that you're learning here's this if you want to get straight to building and like go right on that happy path and just follow the tutorial then continue ahead i hope that like is satisfactory for people who are consuming my <laughs> content online <laughs> but, but that's a that's a whole nother conversation <laughs> well that being said this has been really really fun thank you phil and salma so much i'd like to award a lifeboat a lifeboat badge is a badge that is given to an answer score of 20 or more to a question score of negative three or less that goes on to receive a score of three or more. The badge can be awarded multiple times. Today's is awarded to Anton VBR to what's the function of dedent in Python. And so we'll throw that in the show notes. That being said, thank you again so much to our guests. I've been Cassidy Williams. You can find me at Cassidoo, C-A-S-S-I-D-O-O on most things. I do developer experience at Remote and OSS Capital. Where can people find you on the internet, Salma and Phil? Uh, my name's Salma. You might also know me as White Panther. That's White P4 Nth 3R. I'm White Panther everywhere on the internet, whitepanther.com, etc. And I stream regularly twice a week on Twitch, live coding. Uh, and I'm Phil Hawksworth. My Twitter handle is Phil Hawksworth. Uh, I don't have the creativity of other people <laughs> on this podcast, it seems. Uh, you can find me at Phil Hawksworth on most things or... Hawksworks is my uh, my website, H-A-W-K-S-W-O-R-X.com. Sounds like a radio station when I spell it. I hadn't realized that. Um, and uh, thanks so much for having <laughs> me. It's been great. Yes, thank you. Yeah. And my name is Sierra Ford. I'm a future developer advocate at Auth0. You can find yeah. me on Twitter. My username that yeah. My username <laughs> there is Sierra, that's C-E-E-O-R-E-O underscore. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Bye.